Welcome to panel two, Gen Z preparing to engage the Greta Thunberg generation. So why are we talking about this now? Born after 1997, Gen Z, Generation Z is coming of age. Their commercial clout matters. What they buy, what they invest in, this will matter for years to come. Gen Zers were not born into an uncertain world, but they know what it means. They remember the global financial crisis, austerity, and now COVID. Uh, so they peer into an uncertain and dark future. We're talking about high net worth Gen Zers on this panel today. So let's try over the next hour to understand who they are. Are they different from millennials or from Gen Xers? Are they risk averse or risk embracing? How much do they value good financial education? Do they want to be involved in the running of family offices? Are they wealth conscious, more ESG conscious than previous generations? And how do they want to be banked? And are wealth managers doing a good job serving them? I'm the moderator for this session. My name is Elliot Wilson and I'm Euromoney's Global Private Banking and Wealth Management Editor. Our delegates on the panel today are Viola Steinhoff Werner, Head of Global Next Generation and Families at Credit Suisse, F.E.K. Datsun, who is Global Head of Family Office at Barclays Private Bank, Dominic Samuelson, CEO of Camden Wealth, James Sefton, who is Professor of Economics at Imperial College in London, and Money K. Money is Global Head of Next Generation at City Private Bank. So let's kick off with the first topic, and I'm going to come to Viola first for this. It's a simple one, and I'd like to gauge the opinions of all the panellists. What is Gen Z, or rather, what are, who are Gen Zers? In a few words, what are they like? What do they want? Is it time to think about engaging with this next demographic, or are you already doing so? Yeah. Okay. I mean, generally, maybe to say, I find it very difficult to make a generic statement about a generation, uh, because I'm sure if I had asked my grandparents, for example, whether they are different to their parents, the answer is clearly a yes, right? So every generation, um, as next generation, thinks they are very different to what was there beforehand. And to come to your question, I think what to look at uh, when talking about Gen Z is to just see how they were influenced. And there are many, many different influences, um, but also world events that do influence uh, how a Gen Z thinks and acts and behaves and uh, looks at the world, right? And based on how you defined uh, Gen Z, we're talking about the people who are age 8 to 23, roughly, right? Um, so that's already also a huge range. But I think we can say that they have been living up with a kind of access to, to tech that some other generations didn't have, with a kind of view on that uh, multi-language, multicultural is somehow normal, and all kinds of different things that have to be taken into account, right? And so for me, I think a Gen Z is, again, a generation that is very different to, to a millennial or to a Gen Y or an X or whatever. Um, and I do believe still every generation has the same questions. What do I want to leave behind? Um, who are the kind of people I can count on? Uh, what is my role in the family and all these kind of things? So in the end, uh, it really comes into figuring out what this generation Z has as tools now available with the view on the world they have and how they use these tools. And I think what we can say, it's a pretty uh, big population of this generation and they do bring to the world a certain 
a new view on how to really tackle problems. And uh, also they do make uh, a certain attitude come into place um, and find, for example, if I just take one example out of many, uh, climate change not being something to discuss about, but something to directly tackle. Right. And so I want Gen Z to be seen really as a generation that has different influences and also different tools to tackle world problems and also find their own way in life, in their family. Um, and also, obviously, when it comes to uh, using wealth as a means to reaching their life goals. And Effie, how do you view yeah. Uh, you've, you're a couple of months into your time with Barclays. You've been at Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs. How do you see the, the Gen Zs? Do you get a sense of who they are yet? Yes. So we've done quite a bit of research on this generation at Barclays. And I'm going to highlight a couple of really interesting facts about this generation for us. Uh, so we're starting from a collective common, common ground and to build a little bit on what Viola mentioned earlier. So this is the largest generation in history. They have 1.9 billion people born between, you know, roughly, as you said, 1997, 2010. It's a little bit vague, the beginning and end dates. They, at the moment, we should pay attention to them. They have 200 billion of direct buying power. But interestingly enough, 93% of them influence their household spending budgets, which gives them a $1 trillion indirect spending power. And they have much more influence on household purchases than prior generations. So it's a very interesting group to focus on now. I also find there's a couple of things that do characterize them as different from millennial and prior generations as well. This is absolutely the most digital native generation we have ever had. They are very comfortable multitasking on five screens versus two for millennials. They tend to prefer social media that is quick. They're very digitally uh, savvy. They are extremely financially focused and financially literate. They're, they care about home ownership. They care about uh, understanding how financial markets work. They're realistic um, and they're much more ethically oriented, I think, than prior generations. And that includes valuing health, valuing sustainable uh, value chains in food, in clothing, in, in other consumer goods. And they're, they're very we-oriented as a, as a generation compared to, uh, let's say, millennials and, let's say, baby boomers who were a little bit more me-oriented as a generation. So uh, I also think one other really fascinating fact about them is that they're very entrepreneurially minded. So 70-plus percent of high school students say they want to be entrepreneurs one day, and 15% of them actually are. And those include businesses and things that we would never maybe think of it, Gen X type people like myself. So for their YouTubers and their um, influencers on social media, and those are you know, there's a great story about a, a six-year-old that does toy reviews and makes 11 million pounds a year. It's it's fabulous story. You know, it's a wonderful illustration of this. Um, and they also have very short attention spans. So the classic goldfish has a nine-second attention span. They have an eight-second attention span. <laughs> they have the shortest attention span of any generation, which may not necessarily be a bad thing, but it means when you put up digital content for this group, it has to be really good. Otherwise, you're just swept out of their visual field. So it's a very different kind of demographic than I think we've seen before. And um, I personally find them really fascinating. Anybody else want to jump in? Just feel free. There's a, so a short attention span, entrepreneurial, tackle <laughs> climate change, very we-oriented. Yeah. There's a lot to run through there. That's, that's yeah. really fascinating. Um, and I'm going to leave talking about the high net worth Gen Zers to the, my, the panel, really, because they've got better experience of that. 
but more as looking at it as a demographer, looking at it as what we know about this generation as compared to previous generations is, one, they're going to they're gonna study longer. So they're going to be in the education sector for a lot longer period. Mm-hmm. So they're going to actually start work later in their lives. So a lot of them are likely to take maybe a couple of years finding out what they want to do in the world after they've left a long education period. So they might not enter the labor market until 25, 26, even 27, 28 going on there. So entering the labor market a lot later in their lives. They're most likely to get partner up much later and certainly have their children later than any other generations. So that's going to affect the way they look at their lives. They're also their parents are gonna die a lot later older than every other previous generation. So that has, in effect, is when they're going to receive their bequests, when they're going to receive that that hand down of money from their parents, is going to have, again, a lot later in their lives. So you're seeing a sort of shift of the life course along to a much longer childhood, and maybe these events, these life events happening later in their life. Panelists have mentioned about the digitization we're noticing, or what we believe, this is going to, you know, the economists have a horrible term here, uh, assorted mating. So we're getting less mixing. Partner, when they're partner, when they partner up, there's less mixing happening. Or ha- certainly, we suspect there might be less mixing. So the sort of diversity across economic groups, that sort of great equaliser. Okay. Town girl, poor downtown boy, think, yeah. unlikely to happen so much. That's going to have implications for inequality, huge implications for inequality. So we are seeing their parents getting richer, the richest ever generation we've ever seen. They're they're not going to be passing on their wealth until much later. We're going to see much more assorted mating going on, partnership. So we are likely to see a lot of forces that have been equalizing about equality, have, you know, redistributed resources across populations, those forces are coming together, I think, might be coming weaker over time. And that might push inequality that Gen Zs are going to be living in, the sort of world they're going to be living in. That might be making inequality even a bigger problem going forward. That's interesting. No Eliza Doolittle meeting Henry Higgins, nothing of that sort. M- money, what, what's your view of this? Okay, um, I w- I, I've got three ideas to define Gen Z. You know, one is the, uh, I think I echo Effie and Viola here, one, they are digital natives. Two, they are global citizens. And number three, they are socially responsible, or even more than responsible, they're more socially engaged. Some of them are even activists, you know. But I also like to uh, say something about what the next gen don't like, you know. Uh, or they, they don't like routines. They want flexibility. They are more entrepreneurial. I think they probably won't like banks in the traditional sense of the meaning. I think they want something more like wealth tech, you know, different kinds of business models to engage them. And I think after you said it, you know, the attention span is limited. In fact, I read somewhere that the goldfish attention span or the next gen millennials attention span is six seconds, not eight seconds. So whatever it is, it is definitely shorter than ever before. You know? Yeah. So I think, I think this, this generation, the, the way they will, run their lives. It's, you know, working from home is going to be a natural thing for them, having two or three jobs, continual learning, like what James mentioned, uh, learning throughout their lives and reskilling themselves for changes in the uh, 
in the environment, in the business and uh, work environment. So I think, um, I think it's a different generation altogether. And one more demographic observation we have, is not, there's no research done. Uh, I think, Effie, you mentioned about the numbers of next gen and, all, and so on, one point whatever, three billion or whatever. 1.9. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think 50% of that is going to be Asia. And just looking at population growth in Asia, and uh, you're looking at how China, the Gen Z, is growing, and they are very digital. If you go to China today, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, so I think 50% of the population is going to be Asia. And, and being in Asia, I, I see it, I smell it. You know, these guys are really, uh, and they're also getting wealthier. So they're going to be an important, uh, the, Asia is going to be an important region. And the Gen Z comes to maturity. And uh, Dominic, what does the data tell you? I mean, that's fascinating because, you know, it suggests, you know, Gen Z doesn't like routines. They don't like to be told what to do, maybe. That's, that's, yes. that sort of underlines that. Dominic, what does the data tell you of what Gen Zs are like? In this area, we haven't done so much research. Ours has been more on that generation above the millennials and then the Gen X. But I, th- I think the only three things I'd add, because I think, you know, we- we've covered a lot of ground in this section, is three things. One has been mentioned, which is obviously this issue about digital natives. But what does that really mean? One takeaway was just mentioned, which is that people digest a lot of information very quickly. Uh, we were talking about multitasking, I think, five different tools at one time. I think, though, what this would actually mean from a from a banking, wealth management and and so what I call consumption perspective, it's more about analysis. Uh, I think this generation are very analytical. Uh, they have access to you know, data that, that none of us, and certainly our grandparents and their parents never had. Able to look at things in a very pragmatic manner. Uh, and I think that will be very important over the next decade. Uh, there was a comment made, I think by a few people again, about access to wealth. You know, when will this generation become wealthy? Uh, And it really goes back to the point that was raised about entrepreneurialism uh, and individualism. Uh, I think uh, those are going to be defining characteristics. I think the Gen Zs, they they want to have very personal identities. Uh, And again, I think that will have quite significant ramifications for the discussion we're going to have later about how do you service, how do you manage this cohort. And then thirdly, you can only agree, because you've mentioned it yourself, about Ms. Sunberg. But I mean, yeah, these are very passionate, uh, very proactive individuals. They like to align themselves with causes. I don't think it's about a cause, but with causes. Uh, and again, I think that will be very important, uh, certainly for our penultimate question, which is how banks and how firms are going to be able to identify with this generation. If you aren't positioned clearly and transparently from an ethical or from a gender or from a multiple different cause basis, then, then that will have significant impact on whether people in Gen Z will engage and buy or not. And I think the final piece, the only thing I'd say that the pe- we do know, and we have got some stats on this, is that increasingly children of all income levels, but I know we're talking here predominantly about the wealthy, they are extremely reliant on their friends' opinions, uh, not so much their parents' opinions, and not so, so much, with the greatest respect, professionals' opinions, but they are extremely reliant on their peer set and what they believe is right and wrong. And to a greater degree, and I know that with my own children, they will be persuaded or swayed by their opinions vis-a-vis what my wife and myself say. Fascinating point there, and something I'm sure that we'll come back to, particularly Viola as the head of the 
founder of the uh, Young Investors Organization probably have something to say about that later. Some of the points we discussed earlier probably will jump over because we have a certain amount of time. But certainly COVID is a thing uh, I think is probably worth talking about, if only because it's probably worth as much as, say, the global financial crisis or austerity. Or This is the kind of event that sticks in people's minds. So how has it affected them, you know, health-wise, cybersecurity-wise, in terms of how they embrace risk or, uh, or are not embracing risk? We don't know yet. But um, do we have yet a sort of inkling of what kind of impact COVID and perhaps a world that's now going to be dominated by events like this or events that sort of um, demand our attention to be more focused on health. Perhaps I could come to uh, Effie first to talk about this. Sure. When we looked at this Gen Z, uh, you know, we did a piece of research before COVID, uh, which actually led to some pretty interesting insights that I think have probably been enhanced by COVID. And we don't know yet because we haven't kind of looked at the issue again. But two things stand out for me. One is that uh, this is a generation that their first, I would say, significant experience of world affairs was probably the global financial crisis. And they also saw how that affected their families and their parents. So many parents lost jobs, many older siblings had to work at a younger age. And this, I think, has made them more conservative by nature. So we see as a, as a cohort, they're far less likely to take on debt. They're much more interested in saving. They're far more aware of the difficulties of running up large student debt bills. Uh, and they're also very aware of the use of technology to fill in things like educational uh, aspirations by getting free lessons on YouTube, whether it's learning how to play music or learning how to do maths. So I think the financial decision-making they have a, a propensity to move back to more traditional views of money, career, education, saving, and they make fairly conservative financial decisions. What we also found is that they're much more impact-oriented. So the, the younger, under 30s, uh, which is the line in the sand that we drew, which admittedly captures some millennials, but they were far more interested, three times as likely to allocate capital to impact-oriented investments. And when you ask them, leaning towards Dominic's uh, question about causes, the cause itself was very important. And the number one cause was health. So they were already inclined. 61% of the under 30s that we surveyed uh, once in 2015, again in 2017, said health was the number one most important cause they wanted to invest in. And I am quite sure the COVID uh, experience has probably underscored this for them and even enhanced it. I can't imagine it would have gone any other way. Interestingly, for, for those, uh, the next level of causes, 44% said water was important, clean access to clean water, 43% education, and 40% green energy. And again, I'm sure that those remain important to them in terms of where they allocate their money and how that reflects their values. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's yeah. just on that, Effie, does that suggest that ESG takes a little bit of a backseat to health in this? Health is a component of ESG. I would probably bucket it under the social category. But it says that this is, you know, within the ESG framework, there are some things that really matter to them. And this is what this is actually at the top of the list. Maybe I should reframe that and say is health to yeah. them more important than environmental. But environment's also very important. So we wouldn't minimize that. We are, after all, talking about Greta Thunberg in this uh, session, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Maybe to, to add on that, only if I may, Elliot. I really also don't know what the influences then are. Effie, you also said it's a research before COVID. But I do believe that certainly will also show that there is a very 
big connectivity between what we do in the world, right? Um, that one thing that happens in Asia is something that will affect us all in, in the rest of the world and that connectivity mm -hmm. or the awareness of connectivity um, of all of us living together on this planet is most probably very much forced. And um, hopefully Gen Z will also be the ones who will not only, as you rightly said, Effie, like impact oriented, but also impact uh, active because what we found out in the Global Next Gen report last year was um, that 86% were very much interested in investing much, much more into um, sustainability topics, right? Um, and I find every investment has an impact. So in that regard, it's really important to see these 86%, but only 24% were interested and invested into these fields, right? And of course, Gen Z is, as we said, eight to 23 years old. So not all of them are investing actively um, and a lot yet, but I think the awareness and the desire is clearly there um, and so in that regards I would also assume at this point right not not know but assume that there is a big shift happening and that would be great if I may add we in fact we recently did a, a bit of a focus group with a, a Gen Z a university level type of students well the three things we detected was one is there's a lot of fear uh, in the Gen Z fear about getting jobs fear about what's going on in COVID, you know, if impacting their families and so on. Number two is anxiety. I think uh, they're anxious about the future. Uh, what kind of life they're going to have? Uh, will they have the same level of comforts and wealth uh, like the parents' generation? And uh, the third thing is uh, there's actually some anger, anger from the Gen Z, anger towards the authorities, the politicians for not doing enough to manage COVID to get the economy back to normal, you know, and, and that, that anger is uh, also manifesting itself in greater uh, attention to the global climate issue, the environmental issue. Look at California, it's, it's burning, you know, and, uh, and they feel that there's, there's no, nothing much is being done to address climate change. So I, I do think, you know, even in the city, we see a lot of interest in ESG, a lot more scrutiny on what we provide them, what uh, financial products we offer them, whether they are ESG-centric, uh, you know. And so I think uh, the Gen Z, they also feel that COVID has crammed their style. You know, this is the time to be enjoying life. You know, it has definitely crammed their style. And I think there will be a new normal. I think they are aware that there will be a new normal. They're not too sure about what the shape of the new normal will be. But, um, but yeah, it's not very pleasant. In fact, there was a study, there's this, this psychologist named Martin Newman, who did a study and he said that, um, or rather he shared a study, he said that the mental health of younger generation to your surprisingly is worse than uh, some of the older people, you know, because they are more anxious. They're, they're worried about jobs and, you know, uh, a financial lifestyle and so on and so forth. So it, it is quite interesting how the Gen Z have been impacted. I wonder if that's also to do with the amount of time they spend online. I wonder if in time we'll see some of the, um, the social media companies be added to the list of companies that are uninvestable for mental health reasons. I don't know. Um, in terms Maybe. of... Um, could, Maybe. Who knows? It's, it's out there. Um, we've, we've talked a little bit about how money-conscious, financially literate Gen Zs are. I've heard conflicting data about this, but are they more likely to be money-conscious, wealth-conscious, financially literate, wanting to be actively engaged with the wealth their family has than previous generations? I would unanimously say yes and agree with that comment. Uh, I do too. Uh, every generation becomes more financially literate than the previous uh, generation. Uh, I think, again, that's not just driven by di digital accessibility. There's two big challenges of wealth today. 
One is access to it. There has never been a greater pool of money in the world than there is today. And you know, on one side, you know, parents and, and grandparents are berated for spoiling, giving too much to the young. At the other side of it is this issue, which actually James was talking about a bit earlier, which is about this whole issue of inequality. Uh, and there's a massive stigma around wealth. You know, we talk about issues about gender and race, etc. But actually, if you look at the statistics that related to wealth and to rich, rich people is far greater and far broader and far more ingrained than any other sort of instance. I think that is a challenge for the Gen Zs. And I think, uh, again, you know, you just took going back to our earlier discussion about the takeaway from COVID, I can't really tell if it's made them more health conscious or less health conscious, actually. You know, some kids go out doing some more exercise, some kids have in essence bunkered down. And not. I think the biggest challenge, and I do completely concur with money on this, is that one is anxiousness, but also isolationism. And I think the biggest mm-hmm. is, are these people going to come out of themselves? Because if this has taught nothing to them, it's they've become very individualistic and very isolated in the past six months. And now you're beginning to see this craving for just going out and, in essence, ignoring rules and things. Well, I, I, I'm not going to involve myself in the governmental discussion. That, that, that's, a, I think, a very individualistic discussion anyway, good, bad or indifferent. But I, th- I think this issue of being wealthy or being perceived to be wealthy is becoming increasingly challenging. And I do know there are stats and research done in Asia, which clearly show that increasingly rich children, children of wealthy families, whether that's inherited or made, like to stick together. They don't have this comfort of operating outside of that group uh, because the, the stigma and the issues that that throws up become quite challenging. You asked a question, are they more cautious? Again, I haven't seen any numbers on that. I think that's more an, a myth. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the one thing I think we can all accept is that young people traditionally are higher risk takers than older people. And so it would be quite dramatic to then start saying that Gen Zers are very cautious. So I completely concur about the debt issue. <laughs> I mean, sadly, the three defining issues of their lifetimes has been the GFC, has been climate change and has now been COVID. But uh, you know, there's been two significant market crashes in their, their experience. Uh, and, and that I do think uh, has, you know, they've lived through 10 years of austerity. And the reality is, I know at the moment, and we all know, the governments are printing money you know, without any control at present. But we also all recognise, and I think the young, probably better than anybody else, that that is completely unsustainable in the long term and that there's going to be a price to pay. And we come back to the anxiousness of wealthy children. One of those is that they are going to be taxed extremely aggressively in the next three to five years. Uh, and I think it's probably inevitable that you know, taxes will rise. It's a timing issue. But again, I think there, there is going to be an attack on wealth holders. I think Gen Zers of wealthy families, whether they have a family business, they have a family office, or they are scions of very successful entrepreneurs, I think are very conscious about what's coming their way. Thanks, Dominic. Um, Splash of vinegar on the cornflakes there. Violet, you've got the, um, obviously, you know, we've spoken about this. Has COVID, well, 
in, in any case, our agenda is more likely to reach out to the likes of you for and to Effie and to uh, Dominic and other to money for great sort of financial advice. Money. Are, are they more likely to be proactively involved with wanting this stuff? Are they better financially educated than any other generation? How do you see them? So I'll hand over to James in a second, because James, you wanted to say something. I mean, I would also like to come back to you, Dominic, because for me, um, you said the sentence like being wealthy is more tricky for this generation. And I honestly believe uh, that wealth and money is, is always and has always been a tricky topic. So I don't know whether it's a trickier topic for this gen. It's always the big question, like, what does wealth mean? to me. And that's an individual question. Um, and that is influenced also by in which generation I am. But I really think if we look back into what was said about the Gen Z, like they're more entrepreneurial, they can digest information quickly and uh, like to have multiple titles in uh, what they are doing and, and how they are doing things and how many businesses they are running. And they've seen Mark Zuckerberg um, doing stuff at a very young age. So everything is possible is in their kind of attitude as well. But I, I still believe it's the same question that, that is there in terms of what does wealth really mean? Um, and that is a question where um, banks can be helpful to figure that out. Um, and I also really think the only thing we can say about this generation we're talking about is that they are really more conscious. And to maybe give one anecdote, I mean, I've, I've been working 15 years now in Credit Suisse. Um, so also with Next Gen and um, the realization which I had was um, about the financial kind of consciousness, let's put it that way, um, was that it does, I mean, it has increased because um, in 2005, for example, or 2005, 2007, um, the awareness of, of how wealth can be a tool to uh, really reach certain goals and make an impact um, in the world that was there. But I think daring to use it also at a younger age was not there. And now that is very much different when I look at these groups of next gen I'm working with on a daily basis, um, that the consciousness about wealth and money um, is there because it's seen as a means to um, reach life goals, not as a stigma only, right? And so if you see from generations, wealth was potentially for some of our grandparents really the um, security. Um, for some of the generations, then it was more the freedom to do stuff what you want to do. Um, this generation sees it very much as a responsibility to use it in the right way and to make the best out of it, um, especially when it comes to world problems like climate change, when it comes to world problems um, like, uh, yeah, not taking peace for granted. And of course, here again, it depends on where you live um, in, in the next gen, gen Z in, in India might see it differently than in the US and all these kind of things. I really don't want to neglect in thinking about that topic. But I think the consciousness about finance as a good thing to use to achieve life goals is there. And the interest and curiosity to learn how to use it best um, learn from peers, as Dominic, you said beforehand as well. That is the kind of power that this Gen Z has um, to really make wealth a fantastic kind of opportunity and to not see it only as a burden that you have to deal with. And I obviously just talk about the inheriting next gen that I deal with on a daily basis. Uh, just a small anecdote. I, I can't remember how many applications I've read to study finance over the years. But so I read the personal statements 
and you hear various narratives and they repeat over the years. And the one narrative that's repeating so much at the moment is I saw my father, I saw my parents lose all their money in the GFC. Yes, that's not going to happen to me. And that's why I want to study finance. And I get, you know, a page about the impact that this watching their parents suffer. Uh, yes. Add on them. And, that, and that's their motivation. So definitely they see the importance of the financial sector being financially literate. They also look at investing. Certainly my students do it in a different way. It's not so much about stock picking. Investing is a sophisticated activity. It's a complex activity. So it's not just about finding the right firm or whatever, where to put your money. It is seen as you know, a procedure, a process, uh, a technical process. So that's changed as well. And then there's one point I really wanted to make, which I think is really, really important and I feel strongly about, to do with the COVID. Now, you could look at COVID and say, look, there's an intergenerational transfer here. The economy has been put frozen into lockdown to protect predominantly the lives of the older generations. And who suffered the most? Well, one could argue the ones that have lost their jobs or most likely to lose their jobs are the younger generation. Now, so you could put an argument here that there's of some sort of generational conflict. That is not what we've seen. And this is a really strong message. What we've seen is generational solidarity. And some people who have talked to us strongly about protecting the old are the young. So I think there's a real lesson there about the way that the generations work together. They're not in conflict, as some commentators tried to make. I think there is a real strong connection between the generations. I think that's really interesting, James. Elliot, may I just pop in here with just a couple yeah. of little things to pick up? Because this has inspired a few things in, in me. So um, going back to the point about the inter, uh, intergenerational wealth transfer, I think one of the things we just need to lay out here in this panel is that we're really on the cusp of one of the most, uh, well, the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in history. So outside of the U.S., where we are looking at 25,000 ultra high net worth individuals, Europe, Africa, Asia, Middle East, estimated to transfer $5 trillion to the next generation by 2030. Not all of that is going to Gen Z, obviously. Some will go to millennials, some will go to Gen X and so on. But the idea that there is uh, a lot of money waiting to be inherited by these groups is absolutely the case. And they are also changing. They're changing demographically. So uh, money mentioned earlier how so many more are Asian. Uh, it is absolutely true. There is a, a larger population of, of younger people in, in India, in China, and in the U.S. Those are the three biggest sort of uh, demographic bubbles, let's say, of the major developed markets, right? And so I think that's going to be interesting. We're also seeing transfers of money to, to more, more women and what we would consider the ethnic minorities and so on. And so that's also changing. We have, unfortunately, a very big piece of research coming out on this in partnership with Dominic's group, Camden Wealth, uh, but it comes out on October 26th. So I've been told I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't uh, sort of steal our thunder on the topic today. Give us a soupçon of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think what the first piece of it is just the magnitude of the wealth and the demographics to who's going to be, you know, who's going to be inheriting it. Uh, and so I think that also is spurring some interest in financial matters that James alluded to, because they know that they're going to be responsible for this wealth fairly soon, and they need to be able to handle it responsibly uh, when they do get it. I also just want to pick up on something that Money said about the anxiety, the anger, um, possibly the loneliness that this generation feels. They are definitely more accustomed to socializing and to, to 
carrying out their lives online than any previous generation. But more than half of Gen Zs identify with 10 of the 11 feelings associated with loneliness. In some sense, this is one of the loneliest generations. And if you look at the annual UK youth survey, 16 to 25 year olds, 85% of respondents said they would be more likely to buy a product and service from a brand that they felt supported their well-being. So they really feel like, you know, mental health, well-being is really important to them. And it kind of underscores that value that comes from perhaps by its absence makes them more desiring to have a more collective mentality. So this is what I said earlier about being a we generation and not a me generation. And money, money, perhaps you're in, you know, di digital central these days, um, sitting in Singapore, not necessarily Singapore, but sort of the, the region. What's the impact that you see? You mentioned that Effie's quoting you back, uh, and absolutely rightly, but just to, just to end that particular point, they're incredibly well-educated, Asia HNWs, um, Gen Z, I would just imagine. They're literate, they're mobile, they're very well-traveled pre-COVID. They're probably Chinese HNWs, Malaysian, they will have been educated probably at Western universities. Does this make them more literate financially? Does this make them more lonely as well? When you look at them, when you think of them, what stands out? In Asia, definitely literacy levels are... Uh, much higher than it was you know, 20 years ago. Uh, if you look at China and, and India and you know, Southeast Asia, I mean, there's a huge, huge population basis. I wouldn't say that they are lonely. I don't think um, they, they are very well connected on the internet and you know, social media and so on. Uh, maybe they cannot meet in person, but in Asia, still many countries are sort of back to some quasi-normal kind of uh, situation. People are out there. Uh, going to restaurants and so on. Coming back to your point about, you were mentioning wealth, to, um, how they manage their wealth or their attitudes to wealth. I like to just say that, you know, in, in every generation, I mean, there are financially literate, financially literate, uh, those guys who are profligate spenders and risk averse and those who t take risks very comfortably. And uh, my f fear is, uh, I mean, I look at the city, city private bank as well. I look at the consumer bank, what's going on as well. If you look at the tiers of wealthy people, you know, the, the, the top tier is the super wealthy, and then the, the next is the high net worth, then next the middle class, then the emerging middle class. The gap in wealth between these classes of wealth is widening more and more. And there is also this feeling about the Gen, uh, Gen Z in the middle class and lower that, you know, the super rich are totally rich. You know, they're, they're a league of their own. It's un, un, they're untouchables, you know. And um, so they, they feel uh, there's a sense of a uh, little bit of envy and angst about inequality in society. Look at today, you know, since COVID has happened, uh, there, are pro there have been protests in uh, Thailand, you know, they're against a the monarchy, which is unthinkable, you know, years ago. In Hong Kong, there have been protests. The millennials... Uh, if there is another global financial crisis, I think Occupy Wall Street will be a bigger event than it was the last time. Mm. You know, they are much more angrier and willing to express their anger in a more forceful manner. So I'm not, I'm not sure whether I'm answering your question uh, earlier, but uh, I just thought I want to make the point to you guys. Yeah, and I, and I think unless anybody's got a, a, a point to make on that, um, I think we'll jump on to talk about ESG is, is inevitable, to talk about impact investing and philanthropy and ESG in general. But I think, I think what we'd do, if we go back to Effie made a point at the very beginning about 93% of household decision-making is influenced by Gen Z. But let's talk about the investment products, the way that the products that private banks, yeah. wealth managers provide you know, that, that's very different than do you decide which kind of household cleaner product to buy. 
or which smartphone or so on, are they going to have, are they already having an impact on which investment products to have from an ESG point of view? And how is that influencing how you operate? I'll throw a few things on the table from just what we've seen. I think that they do have uh, a real impact. Um, and I think it is pushing all of us into a more sustainable uh, investment offering or to establish a wider range of products and sort of a bigger product shelf in, in that uh, area. So I'll give you a couple of interesting sort of points that we found. So we, we surveyed about, well, we did it with YouGov, uh, about 7,000 people uh, about the oil and gas industry, you know, in early uh, 2019. And only 19% of 18 to 24-year-olds said they would invest in energy shares. Um, and they had a negative, half had a negative view of the oil industry. And basically they said that they, uh, they demand um, that they're more likely to invest in the sector if they increase their renewables investment, reduce their environmental impact. But also, and this is really important, they also focused on the returns of the investment in dividends and share buybacks. And the takeaway I take from this one little study, which is just looking at one sector, is that the environmental concerns really loom large for this group. And, uh, but equally, they're not necessarily that willing to sacrifice financial returns. And, and maybe Viola has seen more of this than I have up, up close. Um, they're, uh, the, the youngest generation, so uh, are more likely to have made an impact investment, you know, 43% versus 3% for the over 60s. And uh, they're much more interested in you know, making a difference as a guiding principle. So they have a strong sort of sense of values about, um, about impact investing. They care about family security. They obviously care about returns. And, and interestingly enough, they don't expect to sacrifice returns. 82% expect close to or above market returns with the, you know, ESG filter put on to their, um, you know, to their investment portfolios. So, I mean, remember that these are re still relatively small samples because even though this is a financially active cohort um, and, and financially more financially literate, let's say, than others, I think they're still, you know, they're still quite young. I don't really expect my 10-year-old to be making financial decisions for the household, but it's interesting that their value systems come through and um, the desire for making a difference, um, investing according to their values, uh, but not sacrificing investment returns, I think are the messages that come out quite clearly for me. Elliot, I can add to that because on the one hand side, um, as you rightly say, Effie, if, if that's the case, I always find it interesting uh, how can the players in the different markets really help that it's not only an interest on the next gen side and let's, let's take the older part of the next gen Zs, uh, the 23 year olds, right? So if they, for example, want to change the way how um, investments are happening and invest more into ESG, right? There's still the kind of question, how can they do that? And how do they learn how to do it? And how can they also create conversations in their families to change the portfolio into that direction, right? And that is, and Elliot, I hope you don't mind. I mean, also the question like, um, who helps them with that? Besides that they have a certain desire, they have a certain need. Um, there is also the power that they really can shift views um, with other generations, like we've seen with Greta. Um, but we also have seen it in general because impact investing was, um, I think in 2013, even still some kind of niche talk, right? Um, in the talk with the next gen and, and also in the talk in the banking industry. And now it is really a focus. And also, obviously, again, talking with my experience based on Credit Suisse and, and these 15 years, um, it is really interesting how companies cannot ignore 
ignore that. Even though the next gen is not yet the decision makers, as some of you have said before, and they're not yet inherited, they are not the full owners of the wealth, still there's a huge influence that this next gen can play. And so the question is then like, how do the companies and industries react to that? And that is what I find fascinating, how um, the banking industry is transforming into that direction. Um, how you see, like in our case, now even in the executive board, um, responsible people just for sustainable investments and also making sure that this is a constant dialogue and not just a niche dialogue anymore and mm -hmm. clearly we want to more talk more about that um, because that's even also one of the important things to think about like when we know that next gen is like this how do we as players in the industry react to it i mean i think when we're talking about impact investing and you think about this generation i think there is a tension there a schism there between, and I hate these phrases, but the sort of liberal capitalist consensus that you can work within the system and make a difference. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of also the generation who think you have to change the system and the system doesn't work. The system protects current interests and you have to overturn the system. So I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a feeling out there and the anger, my, uh, money referred to that, that you have to change the system. And really, this impact investing is only lying in the pockets of you yeah. know, uh, various yeah. current interests. So mm -hmm. there's a tension there about yeah. that. But, you know, the tension is always coming. And, and that is, you can see it either in a family when a next gen talks to the current gen. You can see the same kind of mechanisms and dynamics also when you think about changing a system, right? Because there's something existing and there's something new in it, right? And that triggers some kind of conflict. And obviously nobody wants that conflict. And um, I think Bill Gates also once said, um, banking is needed, but banks are not. And so I just think that, and I disagree with Bill Gates on that, <laughs> <laughs> because banks are very much needed because they have played a certain role in this kind of every country. They do play a role in the financial crisis. They do play a role in COVID-19 now. So the only question that remains is how can you appreciate what is there and also figure out how you can add something new. And I'll just tell you my personal view on that. I mean, the bank has the business model of being a service provider, right? And there are four asset classes, I mean, four kind of business models overall. The asset builder, like, like a kind of car company, right? The service provider, like a bank, um, the technology creator, like Microsoft. And there's a fourth one that works very, very well with this next gen we've talked about and still talk about being entrepreneurial, wanting to do it themselves, um, being involved and not just the consumers. And that's the network orchestrator business model. That's Uber, Airbnb, et cetera. I mean, ignore how they are performing right now, but still that kind of business model is something to add also to the banking world. So on the one hand side, it's great that there are some service business model, um, the service provider that is there, um, because there is some kind of role that this bank has to play, but to expand it and to add a different business model that involves the next gens, put them at the table, here's their views, figure out how to work with them on a regular basis, even though they might not have the experience, but they have a desire and they have a need, and they are also driving some kind of change, and to include them into that process and to be open as a 
parent, meaning the bank that is there already, that is something which I find fascinating. So in the industry and also in the families we talked about inheriting, it's just a process. But this process fails so often to transform into something new and to include the next gen as a voice to listen to now and not only when they become the decision makers. And that, I think, would be something fascinating to see in the bank industry um, and to make sure whatever we learn in the process of next-gen parent to also do that on an industry-wide level, to appreciate what is there and to add what is more needed. Firstly, to the ESG uh, uh, discussion, I think ESG is non-negotiable. You got to have it, you know. In fact, uh, one, we, uh, we just started an ESG uh, series of webinars and, uh, and we had unbelievable uh, sign up for this and from the next gen community from the, the community that i manage and in fact what they uh, last year when uh, they asked me money show me your esg platform they i when we showed them the platform i got somebody to present it they said is that all you know they, they're expecting more more robust thinking more robust an analytics more robust ideas you know and there are some new companies out there like I, i've seen a company called motive investing or something like that they're very digital and they really connecting with the Gen Z. The other thing about coming back to the business models, you know, I think banks uh, have to reinvent themselves. You know, today you need wealth tech. You know, wealth tech is I've seen this, uh, you know, in in Singapore, in China, uh, you know, across all you know, payments and wealth management. You have financing, you know, payment systems. You know, there's Alipay and all that stuff. Uh, in insurance and in banking, you know, and uh, and in credit, even in credit scoring and all that lending, you know, you have wealth tech companies, traditional banks like the cities and Goldman's and so on. If you don't have some kind of offshoot wealth tech type of company, I think Goldman has started Marcus, City Venture, City is a venture capital type of company that is looking at wealth tech investments as well. I think the Gen Z would prefer to deal with a company that's more wealth tech type. The, the character and personality of a, like, I think there was one site, website called Betterment and, and a few, few of these kind of wealth tech uh, companies, that they are the ones who are going to be, uh, they will be much more of a draw card for the Gen Z. And, yeah. uh, and I think banks have to reinvent themselves the way things are going. And at the private bank, we are now in discussions, you know, how do we appeal to the, uh, the, the next gen, you know? Can, are we good enough for the next gen? You know, do we meet their aspirations? Do we meet their, their behaviors, their lifestyle, their digital natives? Are we digital enough for them? You know? So these are the big questions going on in the bank right now. And we are quite, we are quite intimidated by the challenge. You know? uh, and I don't think we have an easy solution. Perhaps um, just to truncate a lot of our original points into one, I'll ask one final question. I can't remember who said it at the beginning. That um, it might have been, it was either Viola or Effie, that uh, people, Gen Z has listen to their friends, but not their parents and perhaps not their wealth advisors. Well, that's a challenge for many of the people on this call, but it's an interesting challenge. So um, is a sense of opinion forming as to how this generation wants to be not just banked, but served um, by the industry? Is a sense of opinion forming as to how they can be served financially, how you can serve them if you're not the obvious person, for example? I, I think they want to be served by a wealth manager with the wealth tech proposition that's AI driven and data driven, you know, it's yeah. gotta be, that's the engine of advice. I think Dominic, it was you who, who said that um, learning from, from peers is, is really crucial, right? And um, Manny, I do believe that you're fully right that there is a huge influence from AI um, and that there is 
lots of things that uh, will be solved. Um, and also when you look at the value chain of banks, there are many players in the market now who take over pieces of the value chain that a bank has done. Um, from, I mean, how you invest or um, how you really uh, pay also. I mean, all that, there are tons of players and there will be more technology players as well. But I still believe um, that there are many topics as well that you can't really solve with technology. Um, I mean, on the one hand side, again, I am talking here about the inheriting next gen of ultra high families. And um, in that regards, these questions like uh, how to talk to my dad about um, inheriting um, and what will be my responsibility. And I'm not talking just about wealth, but also about the responsibilities of a business and 20,000 uh, employees that come across with that, right? Technology can't, cannot solve that. And therefore, I do believe um, that the banks, yes, have to reinvent themselves and also technology plays a good role in that, but it also changes the way how the relationship managers should act, right? Um, and in that regards, um, answering your question, Alien, there, um, I think how do they want to be served? On the one hand side, again, there is a generation, but they're very different and diverse individuals in that generation. So one will prefer a relationship manager that has white hair, is super experienced, and the other one wants to have a buddy um, to also go out and have a good kind of evening um, and drinks and whatever, right? So the needs and the, the preferences are different there. But what I've also learned in, in my experiences on the one hand side, on the CS side, but on the other hand, also working with the young investors and the young investors organization, it is really about peers and the combination of, I mean, building your own ecosystem, so to say, to tackle um, investment topics. And the ecosystem includes technology, includes the relationship manager that is a good orchestrator of different solutions that a bank or other players can uh, solve. And also the ecosystem involves peers. And that is, again, where I think global banks, I mean, like City or, or UBS or CS, et cetera, have a kind of possibility to bring in social capital, right? Um, like peers that have similar problems. And I don't want to see them as um, privileged problems or whatever. I mean, it is a kind of decision you have to make whether you are going to be part of the family business or not. Um, and it is also something based on your own skills and your own interests, whether you want to really do wealth management yourself um, or whether you want to create a family office or whatever. And okay. these kind of questions, I think, is best solved if we also bring, again, thinking about the table, bring different parties at one table. It's the peers, it's the RM, it's the technology, um, and to orchestrate that in a very meaningful way and to also have an ecosystem that works well with all these different and new elements included. I think the challenge is immense for banks and financial institutions. I think you know, the reality is that uh, this is a very discerning uh, clientele. Uh, they ultimately, they're going to want, it's, it's going to be a collision, and I think I agree, it's going to be a collision of tech and in-person. Yeah, in-person is not going anywhere. So just to say you can transform and move everything onto a digital device is, is completely inappropriate. There are so many complexities. I think you're going to find, and we've been doing some research on this, but there's going to be fewer advisors per client. Okay, so that's a big challenge, number one. So we're at the moment, on average, uh, a high net worth family will have between six to eight different advisors. That's probably going to be halved, cut in half by 50%. That, that is probably the single biggest challenge. 
But then you've got this issue that we don't live in a nine to five world anymore. You know, this is a virtual world. This is a 24-7 world. You know, ultimately, Gen Zs are going to want to be banked anywhere, anytime, and they would like it to be fairly customized. And those are three very significant challenges, some of which can be navigated by technology, but not all. And the role of the relationship manager actually, I believe, will become more important rather than less important. But it's going to be a very complex and sophisticated challenge to be able to navigate. Great. Thank you. I just wanted to focus slightly down the wealth distribution. I, you know, don't have so much experience of the very ultra high net worth. But just like in terms of servicing the Generation Z, Z in terms of products, I think we could do a, a, there's a big hole in the market in terms of their number one concern is getting a house. And I think products that are available there, there's no reason why that can't in some ways, that product can't be financialized away. It could, you could have a fund that bought houses and people could buy a part share in that fund and slowly build up. It could be leveraged to imitate sort of homeowning. There's no reason why you can't build a product there, but there isn't one. The sector's not doing that uh, for this group of sort of middle wealthy young adults. And so I think there's a challenge to the, to the industry to try and really think a bit more naturally about the products this generation needs. So, you know, just a few last thoughts on this. You know, I've been thinking about this uh, generation quite a bit um, in my role at, at Barclays. And some of the things that I just feel we can do for them is really uh, around sustainability and ESG. Um, this is a group that's really focused on things that are, are genuine, that have authenticity, they're creative, they want to be involved, they're innovative. And so, you know, one of the you know, famous Barclays, our Barclay, a tagline, our purpose really is to create opportunities to rise. And I've noticed that um, we have an enormous net work and connectivity of companies and entrepreneurial companies, you know, under our umbrella. And so one of the things we really want to do is try to bring this Gen Z generation closer to um, and maybe even to, to be those types of entrepreneurs that are going to change the future. I really do think we're in a very interesting inflection point in history, actually, where this generation is going to have to reshape the institutions of our lives. And they do care about this quite a lot. They care about, for example, data privacy. You know, that's going to, we're going to have to reshape the way we handle that. We're going to have to reshape our energy systems. We're going to have to redo our you know, food systems um, there's a, and even our banking and, and wealth management systems. And I actually think that some of our biggest competitors in banking are actually likely to come from the large tech companies that are already well established um, you know, and have a lot of loyalty and brand trust with this generation. So you know, is, is Apple going to do cryptocurrencies in a way that bypasses a lot of big bank transactions? Maybe. But there's still, as, as Viola says, I think a role for us to play because the human element is important and because we capture a, a network, an ecosystem of really innovative, you know, companies in their early days that we can bring to these investor clients that also connect them in ways that are more than just about making an investment. It's about, you know, shaping the way that our future is going to look. And I think this is a really wonderful generation in the sense that they're so engaged. The world will be different because of them. Wonderful. Thank you to everyone. Uh, an amazing look into the future that's already appearing into a bundle of contradictions, Gen Z. Connected yet lonely, um, wanting 
environmental sort of financial and yet also environmental returns from their investing perhaps wealth to some of them is less cool but they still want to be steve jobs <laughs> An incredible look into the future thank you to all of you to uh, violet to fe to money james and to dominic and for myself and elliot thank you very much thank Great you pleasure thank you, thank you.